Okay, tell me. So, Matt was in the car with Koa and Koa's best friend, Ozzy, and Ozzy's dad, Jared. They were driving to the beach. And the little boys are sitting in their car seats, and Ozzy says suddenly, Dexter just threw up. And Dexter is his cat, his pet cat. And Matt, who, I don't know, he's bored, he's in the car, texts uh, Ozzy's mom, who's home, and says, for some reason, Ozzy just said that Dexter threw up. Oh, my God. And Dexter just threw up. Yeah. She wrote back and was like, I just stepped in it, and now my blood is running cold. How crazy is that? Wait, I don't like it. That's scary. So he's psychic. So we have to listen to everything he says now, and it's exhausting. I was talking to my mom this morning. Mm-hmm. She was on the phone. Like, she was like, I was telling some of my friends. She goes, what is that? It's like scary, creepy, sleepy. <laughs> she, oh, she didn't know the name of our show? <laughs> In my mom's defense, she doesn't know anyone's name. She probably thinks her name is Quentin. Like, she just knows the first letter. Tell her TDC. TDC's cute. TDC's yeah. cute. She's, she'll be like, TLC? She'll think we're fucking... Lisa Left Eye Lopez, T-Boz, and oh, I can only hope. Chili. Is it Chili? What is it? It's T-Boz? It's definitely Chili. Chili and Lisa Left Eye Lopez. Yeah. They were fucking good. They were chasing waterfalls. Dun, dun, dun. This is a 90s themed day. I don't know if you remember last week, we covered Jagged Little Pill. This <laughs> week. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Uh. Please take to the rivers and the... What if I did that? I was like... Okay, my today's creepy story is lonely mother gazing out <laughs> of her window, staring. That is something that she just can't touch. We've got to come up with a mixtape for our uh, we do Patreon subscribers and musical. send them a mixtape. <laughs> oh, how much would they love that? Oh, I we could just throw that up on Spotify and share it to our and just be like, here's some songs we've sung on the podcast. If you want to listen to the real tunes. We do bugaboo. We do waterfalls. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We're That's... smart, too, though. We're readers, too. Are you reading anything right now? Yes. Not to put you on the spot I like am. that. I am. Actually, I don't always have, like, a book locked and loaded. I'm reading Tiny Beautiful Things. It's the Dear Sugar article. It's the Dear oh, Sugar. It's yes. on Cheryl Strayed. Yes. How yeah. is that? Ah, really hit in the spot. I've heard great things about it. I resisted it for so long, and then a friend of mine, we did a book swap at the beginning of quarantine, and then I left. And while I was home in Chicago, I was with family, and so I didn't feel like I needed to read. I could just stare at my screen when I needed to and work and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> they were going to say I could just stare at them. I didn't need to read. I just... Wa- just stared people at my watching parents. I was people watching house. my mom and dad. They are <laughs> fascinating people. I would, I mean, they're worth the watch. They're, you know, my mom's moving like light speed. It's quite entertaining. Um, but I'm reading this book. I just picked it up the other night. And it's kind of a great before bed read because it's a question um, and then Sugar's response. Mm-hmm. And so you can read kind of like a couple before bed 
So mm-hmm. it's not like you're in the middle of like a, you know, you just Got finish it. a it's story cl- and put it down. It's a cliffhanger situation. I mean, I love a cliffhanger. Actually, that's my favorite kind of book. Oh, really? Um, if you, for any of you true crime fans, aka hopefully all of you, if not just a Quinn and Carrie fan, you should read um, Tana French's books. Yeah, they're great. They're great. They're great. I'm reading a book like that right now. Like, a, <sighs> it's called The Guest List. And it's about a wedding. And it's very, like, every single time. And by the way, this is side note, but nonetheless strange and interesting. It was, like, a $15 book on Amazon. I think it's still only in maybe hardcover. And, like, a $15 book for Kindle, even. And I was like, oh, dang, I'm just going to look on eBay and see if someone's selling it. And sure enough, someone's selling it for, like, 6 bucks or something. And I was Ah. like, great. So I buy it. I didn't read the small print. You know what they did? Huh. And this has got to be illegal, by the way. They sent me a PDF of the book. So not a Kindle, to be fair. Not like a some sort of normal online thing. Weird. But I now on my computer have to read it off a PDF. Yeah, read that fine print, it's folks. It's not ideal. That is not... I, I paid $6 more for a regular situation. I don't know what I was thinking. This isn't working out for me at all. I it's don't love reading very, on my iPad, though. Well, you know, the weirder thing... Huh. I can, like, send it to people. I'm not. But I could. Yeah. In the way where I'm like, that's why it can't be legal. Oh, I have a really good book recommendation for all of our dear readers. Um, There's a book called Stay Gold. My friend wrote it. His name is Toddly McSmith. Mm -hmm. And it's so good. It's a young adult book. It came out, I want to say, is it May or June? Late May, maybe? It's so good. It's his first novel. Please read it. Okay, I'm going to wreck a book, too. Ready? It's a book club, suddenly. I love it. The book is called A Good Man. The author is Annie Katz, and it's crazy good, where you're like, what's going on? What's going on? And when it ends, your breath will be taken away from you. (gasps) And... In the time of corona, that is saying a lot. (laughs) Maybe you want to keep your breath in the time of corona. But I did think that this book was... So well written, so smart, and so fun to read. And I have never read anything like it. It's like a, almost like a psychological thriller, maybe. I don't know what I would oh, call it. I but do I love really, those. really loved it. I do. I read, I mean, I read Tobley's book in a day or two days because it was just so good. And I'm going to, spl- he named a character after me in it. And it's like <gasps> the coolest thing in the whole wide world. Oh, well, that's why you like it. Not even that. It's a. It's about a transgender boy in Texas. Um, named Carrie? Named Carrie. No, it's a transgender <laughs> boy like, in Texas named Pony. And it's just, like, it's a really sweet, romantic, it's, it's, it's of the moment, it's of the time, it's wonderful representation for trans kids. It's wonderful. Oh, great. Yeah. I love but that. I'm named in it. That Do you guys was feel like, like we proved how smart we are just now? I've <laughs> Carrie well read a young adult read. novel. <laughs> and she plugged it because she's in it. Reading <laughs> tons of young adult novels, left and right, <laughs> like geniuses. Like flippin' geniuses. I have such upper lip sweat right now. Where do you... <laughs> I, my nephew, we would be playing... Oh, my God, I love my nephews. I do miss them. When I left Chicago, I cried. Yeah. And I held it together for them because they're 22 months and eight months. Like, they don't care. They're no, like, Carrie, they're like, see when we see you, but, lady. But If that Jack, is your real name. Seriously, but Jack is saying my name. Kay, it's so oh, cute. And cute. he says he's such a talker. He's like, octopus. He says octopus. He's 22 months. Like, 
really sweet. But Liam, when he gets really sweaty, he's totally of our family because we get, you know, we get sweat in weird places in our faces. But he gets little beads of sweat on his nose. Like it's, <laughs> it's that's just so cute. Like tiny beads, and he gets really overheated, so he gets a little red, and it was hot. And just nose, not under his nose. His nose gets sweaty. That's so sweet. It was so fucking cute. So I said goodbye to them, and I like was feeling emotional. And then I left because um, I am embarrassed to cry in front of my family. That's just because I cry often. I just don't want them to have any more reason to be like, we're worried about Car- Car- Carrie's fragile. We're worried about oh, her. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, crying, I don't love that this is the way it works, but it, it makes, obviously, it's, to me, there is a fear that it will make me come across as weak or mm. fragile or mm-hmm. vulnerable in a way that I don't feel. I actually feel like, crying helps me you know but in front of my family I just it's it's a scary thing to like expose yourself like that right even though I do it all the time but my brother gave me a hug goodbye he was outside and we were leaving and I gave my brother a hug and that's when I was like because he held on a little longer he's like thanks so much we're gonna miss you you can stay you know it's been so nice to hang out with my nephews yeah like and they're so sweet yeah and it's hard right now to say goodbye to people because you uh everything feels a little more scary and weighted and strange oh my um, god and also like the thing that's scary to me is that i feel like i was on borrowed time yeah you know like having wait f- what do you mean like four- i was like like you're gonna die <laughs> no like having four months to be in chicago not where i live oh to yeah be with where my you're like parents when- and when will life be in such a when will I just take four months off and it has kind of been that's like the uh, rose of this thorn that uh, well I don't I'm not expected anywhere progress right now in terms of work or even many friendships is not dictated by where we physically are and that gives you a different kind of freedom to open your mind around physically placing yourself somewhere you wouldn't be and it's it's the idea that you would ever have your work situation be where it's like well for four months I'll just live with my parents like it's just not a thing unless you're a podcaster for a living which case go for it not that we are Patreon, donate. We're a podcaster for a we're a podcaster for funsies for funsies for free and fun for free and fun do you want a fun fact? no okay uh, can I have the fun fact? I lied. All right. Bob Ross felt like his hair was too annoying to deal with and to cut. Like, he didn't like cutting it. And so he got it permed. And that's why it looks like that. That's not how his hair, like, really is. It's permed. Would you ever think that he had permed his hair? Would you ever know that? Or wouldn't you just think that's that's how his hair is? Quinn, where did you learn this? I'm worried because that came out of seemingly nowhere. Did you see a happy? Are you looking at happy clouds you right know what? now? Like what's happening? I can't remember where I saw it, but I. But it stayed with you. It's stuck with me. I saw it somewhere <laughs> in the news this week. But you know what I was thinking? Um, that we should perm our hair. The week this episode comes out, that's what I'll make learn. Something about, I'll, I'll make learn. You know how I changed the link yes. in our website to yeah. go to a different, dear readers, if you haven't been to our website, it's gorgeous. Made it myself. Trulydarklycreeply.com. <laughs> not truly darkly sleepily. Not like my mom. <laughs> not sleepily, not peepily, not pooplies. If you go there and you click on the learn button, every week I change what that links to. 
and it will take you somewhere delightful where you can learn something. And definitely this week I'll sync it up because I'm so fucking organized that it'll be <laughs> some sort of site that talks about Bob Ross. A whole new world. Yes. Is it my turn to go first? Yeah. I lied. I knew it was my turn. I know. I could tell. I knew. It wasn't good acting. You're going to need to work on that. That was hurtful. It's been too According long. According to unemployment, I'm seeking work. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I am going to share with you the story of the Alcatraz Escape of 1962. <gasps> Yay! You I know, can't wait. I sure you know it. Well, I've been to Alcatraz. Um I'm so and excited. I have definitely not. in the gift shop, there's like some good, like cool stuff that makes you interested in that. And on the tour, they talk a little bit about it. Um, but I'm fascinated and excited that you're going to tell this story. Well, here and away. By the way, you're listening to Truly Darkly Creepy. I'm Quinlan Bosner. And I'm Carrie Epema. And this and is the story of the Alcatraz Escape of 1962. Buggle up. Feel free to include anything. I haven't been there, so I feel like whenever you go someplace, you can see it better in your mind's eye. Um, so I got this information from Legends of America <laughs> and, oh, Wikipedia. Um, so Alcatraz, also known as The Rock, not Dwayne The Rock Johnson, um, is located in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. It's surrounded by cold, rough water. Would you swim there? Hell no. Today's 93 degrees. You bet I fucking would. God, it Dive sounds right great. In. I'd fucking oh, get in there so hard. I would murder a person just to get the boat right out, and then I'd jump right in. San Francisco can't be this hot right now. It can't be. It can't It's be. never been this hot. I don't know. Global warming is a thing. In case you're curious about Truly Darkly Creepily, we're on the side of science. Okay, moving on. So... <laughs> Apparently, Alcatraz started housing prisoners during the Civil War, which surprised me considering the Civil War feels like didn't go that far west. Right. I don't know how that worked. Since I, as you know, as I've been outspoken about, you I know, know nothing, nothing about history. So I feel very uncomfortable even telling you whether or not there was a Civil War. This podcast believes in science. History? <laughs> Shrug. <laughs> Never heard of it. Never heard of her. More like her story. Um, so in 1934, when crime was at its worst, um, that is when it was refortified into the world's highest security prison. It housed people like Al Capone and prisoners who had a history of escaping. So in that refortification, it got tougher iron bars. Guard towers were placed to prevent any uh, any escape, and there were strict rules. Like, they did round-the-clock bed checks. So I feel like it was something like 12 times a day. If you do the math on that, that's like a check every two hours. That's <laughs> any questions? a lot of checking. And that was division, folks. That was division that I just did there. Um, so between 1934 and 1963, 36 men tried to escape. Over the course of 14 attempts, almost all of them were caught or died. 23 were recaptured, six were shot and killed on their way out, two drowned, and five were missing or presumed drowned. Of the five, I am about to go into three. So maybe we'll do another one of the other two. Um, on June 12, 1962, during an early morning prisoner check, these guards go in and they're like, huh. These three beds? Looks like there's fucking dummies in them. 
Oh, they knew right away. <laughs> well, not right away. They had the night guards and missed it. So oh, early in the morning, they were like, fuck, these are dummies. And we missed it the past, like, 10 hours. And where did these guys get their hands on <laughs> dummies? For a high-security prison, I don't know. I've watched Orange is the New Black. You can exchange a lot of things there. I don't I know. I think that's a low-security prison. Is it? Uh, I have no idea. I have no clue. Let me go over the prisoners that were missing from their jail cell. This guy, John Anglin, he was there with his brother, Clarence Anglin. Both of them, by the way, Clarence Anglin, I saw a picture of him. Hot. <laughs> I gotta he's a bad tell guy. Ya. He's a bad guy, but he's, he's a bad good guy, looking. But shit, I was like, hey, Clarence. Hey. I never thought I'd be with a man named Clarence. Did you really let get alone, out? Did you get Hit out? Hit me up. Give me a call. Me I'm on hinge. You're really fucking old now, but... Maybe I'll change Maybe I'm the, into that. Maybe I'll change the age parameters on my hinge to include 80 something year olds. Um <laughs> I'll like stop between like 40 and 80 and be like, but 80 plus, sign me up. Um so they were two of 13 kids in their family. Their parents were farmers. Um so they traveled a lot, farmed, farmed cherries up north and also were in, you know, Atlanta and Florida, all that good stuff. Um, they were arrested in 1956 for robbing a bank in Alabama. They were given a 15 to 20 year sentence. They met this guy, Frank Morris, there. He'll come up later. They then were transferred to Florida State Prison, then Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, Penitentiary in Kansas. They then tried to escape from Kansas, the Kansas prison, and then they were sent to Alcatraz. What I read about them later as well was that apparently they never used actual guns. The one time they were convicted or charged with an armed robbery, it was a toy gun that they used. So it does feel like they just maybe were like, let's rob because we don't have money. You can quote me on that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Then there's this guy, Frank Morris. Okay, Frank Morris. He's orphaned at 11. Um, He was in and out of foster homes. He was 13 by the time he committed his first crime. In his late teens, he was arrested for crimes involving narcotics possessions and armed robbery. He was super fucking smart. He was tested. His IQ was tested. He was 133 IQ, which I think is high. I don't know. I think Mensa is like 142. No, because otherwise they'd find out no one is a genius and we're all doomed. But they do the cognitive test, as we know. (laughs) How many fingers is this? That's a middle (laughs) finger, folks. But this guy, Frank Morris, scored in the top 2% of the general population. So so he was incredibly smart. When they say general general population, I don't know if it was general population of prisoners or just general population of the world. Big difference. Yeah, but I think 133 is pretty high on the IQ test. I've taken a lot of internet. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I haven't. They usually require you to pay, and I'm not doing that. So. Only done the tests in Cosmo. And for that, I am an Aries with a fiery side. (laughs) I'm a vixen. I'm what they call a prude. (laughs) (laughs) So he served in Florida and Georgia, as I had said. In Georgia, he met um, the brothers, Mm -hmm. the Anglin brothers there in Atlanta. He then went to Louisiana State Penitentiary, and he escaped from there while serving a 10-year prison sentence for bank robbery. He was then recaptured and then sent to Alcatraz. So like I said, Alcatraz was for prisoners that just wouldn't stay put. They kept right. ding-dang-dong escaping. So he was sent there in 1960. So there was another guy. There was a fourth guy. His name was Alan West. But he was um, in jail for car theft 
Um, and he had a similar story. He went to uh, he was in Atlanta jail. He was in Florida. He then tried kept to out. he kept he broke out of Florida, and then they sent him to Alcatraz in 1957. So they think that the escape started planning in December of 1961. So John and Clarence Anglin, brothers, um, and Frank Morris and Alan West plotted their escape. So they planned at the time that they were all going to have these dummies in their bed. The heads were made of paper mache and... Where the fuck are... So there's like a craft hall? No, but they just used crazy amounts of shit. So they used soap, toothpaste, concrete dust, and toilet paper. Smart. They used paint from the maintenance floor, which I can't even believe they found paint to match their skin tone. <laughs> These guys are great at DIY. Great at DIY. would love a channel. Um, and real human hair. Gross. Real gross, but that they have on hand. Yes. Just snip, snip, snip. You got it. And so the night guards didn't notice anything. So I mentioned this fourth guy, Alan West. Mm-hmm. Alan West did not go with them because he couldn't get his vent open. <laughs> To escape. God damn it, Alan. He might have been better off for it, which we'll get into later. So Alan West, by having him stay back, he was able to sort of put together what happened and how they were able to maneuver and figure out what was going on, figure out how they actually went through with the escape. So one of them came across this old saw blade and then they found a broken vacuum cleaner, and through the saw blade and the motor, they were able to sort of make a makeshift uh, saw. Saw. Like electric yeah. saw. Like an electric saw. It's genius. So they had the vents in the room, so they were able to, like, meticulously saw around the vent so that they could remove a whole chunk of the, of vent. the wall. Of the vent. The wall with the vent. Got it. And then they would use cardboard and things to put it back so nobody would notice. Right. Is it like Shawshank where there's like a poster in front of it or something? No, I think they just like used paint and co- and, and cardboard oh. and like whatever they had back there to hold it up so that no one would know. Okay. And so what happened was is they would hide shit in there and Frank Morris, he played instruments. So mm-hmm. he had an accordion with him in Alcatraz. And so when they were doing this like sawing he He would would play play music and they also used apparently in the prison they had music hour and so what happened was is during the music hour there was a lull of music and his accordion where they could meticulously like poke holes with their saw around this wall so they could remove it and put Mm -hmm. it back whenever they needed to so they found a way to get out of their cell that way what they did was right behind the cells, which this feels like very poor planning, was there was a utility corridor that was completely unguarded. Mm-hmm. So they were able to maneuver out of their vent and go into this utility and meet up behind the cells. And from there, they could climb up, somehow climb up on top of their cell block in the building. There was like a little bit of crawl space there where they set up their secret workshop. And this is where they were able to build shit. And I love the secret workshop. <laughs> so good. So what they would do is they would they would have one of the guys would be on lookout for the officers rolling around um, and would warn them when someone was going to come in. So they used materials both stolen and donated. I have a feeling that a donated. lot of it, I think other prisoners were like, yeah, sure. They try started it. to go fund me. Go, they started to go fund me within the prison. They started Patreon. They were like, <laughs> you let us know. We'll give you an episode a month. Um, so they had all of these rain jackets, these raincoats. 
I think they had more than 50 raincoats. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made makeshift life preservers with them. And they also made a 6 by 14 foot rubber um, tube that made a raft. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they hand sewed the raincoats, but they also used the hot pipes to seal them shut. To seal the raincoats shut as a raft. Yeah, so they had like, so they sealed it. So, so like they, melting the rubber sort exactly, of. Exactly, and fusing it together. They used hot great. steam pipes. Isn't that brilliant? This is great. So they built paddles, these wooden oars that they made, and then they used a musical instrument to inflate the raft. So like they used... What? So I think one of the guys, when I first read it, I was like, oh, that was an accordion. But another report said it was a concertina. I don't know why these people... Well, they had instruments. I'm into it. I like it. And you know the one that's like a little... It's like a tube. It looks like an accordion, but it's not as like big. It's a Uh little guy. Yeah. I think they just used that to blow up the raft. Makes sense. Because it shoots air. Okay. So to get out of the building, they had to plan that. So the ceiling was 30 feet high... And so they had to use the pipes to climb up, and then they opened the ventilator at the top, and they used a bar of soap to make a fake bolt so they could get the fuck out of there. Mm-hmm. So on the evening of June 11th, they went to the corridor. On the evening of July 11th, the four of them planned to get the fuck out of there. So they put these dummies that I mentioned, and they put them in bed, and they were all planning to get the fuck out by using these the vents that they had cut open. Uh, but Alan West couldn't get his open. But the question is, how long do you think the three of them waited for him? Ooh. Uh, Maybe he I, was able to... I think he'd be like, go, 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 go. But also, like, Don't wait if for you me. had been opening it and closing it, and for some reason you couldn't get it open, there's something about it now that I'm just thinking... Seems a little fishy. What if they were like, no we don't want him with them? able to get in his cell and mix... Uh, but they're all connected by that back oh, corridor. Oh, so they are. Somebody was like, I don't know. I don't really. Helen's kind of annoying. Alan. So my question is now, now that I'm saying it, after I did the research, I'm like. Did somebody climb in there while was Alan was asleep it? the night before and stick some glue in there? Paper mache it shut. it's possible. We don't know. We don't know. So on the evening of July 11th, they went to the corridor, got their stuff, climbed up the pipes to the roof. The guards heard a crash apparently that night, but didn't investigate it. They just were like, huh, a loud noise. This is a super safe prison. We're fine. They moved, they shimmied down the smokestack of the bakery behind the cell house, climbed like two fences or something, and then went to the northeast shore to launch their raft. And apparently this is, was a blind spot um, in the prison towers and the gun towers, the search wow. towers. all right. So they planned on getting to Angel Island and then cross Raccoon Strait and into Marin County. And from there, they were going to steal a car and close and go. And that is the last we know of their whereabouts. We don't know how successful. We have no idea. But no bodies washed ashore, I assume. Or we'd be talking about that. Yeah, no bodies washed ashore. And we'll get into more of that later. Okay. Once they were found missing, the FBI was immediately called. There was a San Francisco office, and they were looking through all of their records um, of their previous escape attempts, because as we know, the reason why they went to Alcatraz in the first place is because they were prone to escaping. They interviewed their relatives, thinking that maybe there was some sort of connection and they could let them know, because if you were going to escape, wouldn't you tell your mom? That day, they asked for boat operators who were taking ferries to see for any boat debris or anything, and a couple days later, they found a packet of letters to belonging to one of the men, I think wrapped in rubber or plastic to protect mm-hmm. him, a homemade life jacket washed ashore, some pieces of wood resembling a paddle, 
bits of rubber inner tube, and then that's it. That was found. Tricky, because what I'm asking myself as you say that is, if it had gone successfully, do I leave? I mean, I obviously the letters would not be left purposefully, but am I going to leave things like a life vest? Am I going to leave right. things like the boat? I mean, I think you kind of ditch it. and You think you ditch it? I think you ditch it first chance you get. I mean, it's like, what? what is that? So again, the question is, is did they drown or did they survive? Right. Well, that's what I'm wondering is like, planning wise, would I have demolished the raft once ashore and brought all evidence of how I escaped with me? Right. Or just left everything in a mess to then get beaten up by the ocean and then discovered in hopes that they might say, oh, they drowned. I feel like it's six and one half a dozen in the other. Because I think if nothing has appeared, you're like, they drowned. If Got some it. things are appeared, they drowned. Right. I don't think there's any world in in which case they're not. Like one guy, and I was going to get to one guy swam across. It's like a two-mile swim to Angel Island from Alcatraz. Uh-huh. But by the time, or he like swam to San Francisco Bay. He he swam away from Alcatraz. Okay. And by the time he was found immediately because he was shivering with hypothermia, like, it was fucking cold waters, even in June. It's very You die very fast. I mean, have you seen the movie Titanic? It's Jack Dawson all over again. That was fast. And the question is, is who's on the door? So the FBI believe they couldn't have lived. One guy was like, I felt that they didn't make it, but I thought we'd find a body. We didn't find a body. So they don't believe they made it, but they believe that it's a little bit strange that they never found the actual bodies. Um, yeah, because like just odds. Well, three. Well, it's three, but also the U.S. Marshal, this guy Michael Dyke, told the news that the bodies of two out of every three people who go missing in San Francisco Bay are eventually recovered. Oh, really? When you have three, two out of three. Somebody's going to wash ashore. Somebody's going to wash ashore. So there's a report one month after the incident that there was a Norwegian freighter that saw a body floating in the ocean 15 miles away from the Golden Gate Bridge. And there's reports that say, and I don't know how yeah, trustworthy. Yeah, would be jumping off that bridge. So, but that's there was a recent bridge jump. There was a, there was a recent suicide off of the bridge. But they Always said, is. but the freighter also had said. I read one place that they were wearing a navy pea coat and light trousers, which is similar to the Alcatraz uniform. But they never picked it up. So again, I, I I'm not like that. To me, is not solid evidence either way. But they're hanging out with DB Cooper somewhere, as in we never have like mm-hmm. heard or seen from these fellows. No, and I'll get into that. So, human bones were located eight months after the escape, having washed ashore. The bones were recovered and buried under the name. Can you guess? No. John Bones Doe. John Bones Doe. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's a life. R.I.P. At the time, a pathology report on the bones indicated that they belonged to a man at Morris's age age and height. But apparently later they tested the DNA. It did not relate. Could not relate. So, like I said, there are people that had crossed the bay before, but the, the, the tide and the current odds are pretty much fucking stacked against you. Uh, So he, they were supposed to steal clothes and steal a car while they were on land, but there were no reports of any stolen cars. Mm -hmm. There was no contact with any family members. And over the 
next 17 years, there was no evidence to show that they were alive in the U.S. or elsewhere. So that part of the case was closed in December 31st, 1979. But wait, there's more. So obviously there's so much mystery surrounding this information, and I think what happened was the FBI closed the case, but I think the U.S. Marshals kept looking. Mm -hmm. I think they kept it on. They kept it open in their end. In 1993, their former roommate, this guy Thomas Kent, he told America's Most Wanted that he had a lot of new information that was about to blow the roof off this joint and that he helped with his escape. He claims that Clarence Anglin's girlfriend, ladies he's taken, that's to me, he's taken, (laughs) um, that she agreed to meet them and drive them to Mexico. And Kent, the reason why he didn't go with them is because he couldn't swim. But he was paid $2,000 for those interviews, so investigators are super skeptical about whether the validity of that. In um, 2003, there was a Mythbusters episode about it. They checked it out. They said it was plausible. That they could have made it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In 2011, it came out that by National Geographic, there was claims that there were footprints on Angel's Island and that there was a car stolen nearby that the FBI didn't disclose, but apparently there was reports of a stolen car. In 2011, this guy Bud Morris, he was 89 at the time, he was a cousin of Frank Morris, one of the escapees, and he claimed to have delivered money to the prison eight or nine times as a bribe to the guards to let them escape. And he claims that he met his cousin Frank face-to-face in San Diego after their escape. So he claims that he has seen Frank since he escaped. Um, his daughter even corroborates his story, saying that she was eight or nine years old at the same time at the time and that she met her, quote, dad's friend Frank. Great. Sounds so like that, they got out, man. I mean, I'm on the side of they did. You're on the side of they did? In 2000, I like the story, and it's a better story if they did. It's a way better story if they did. In 2012, the Anglins brothers, their sisters, spoke at a news conference at a public appearance. Maybe it was a news conference, but they had made a public appearance with their nephews, their kids. Mm-hmm. And they, were, they also believed that their brothers were alive and in their 80s. Mary Anglin claimed that she got a call from John Anglin in 1962 from San Francisco. I think some of them report as having answering the phone and hearing breathing and believing it to be their brothers. They also claimed that they got a Christmas card that year in 1962 saying, to mother from John, Merry Christmas. But there's no postage on it, so there's no way to prove when it was sent. Oh. In 2014, researchers claimed that if they left at midnight, they would have lived because of the way that the current was going. It would have led them to Angel Island. But if they left in the early morning, they probably died. So depending on when they left, it would have been... Just because the current changed it. Because I don't know if you've heard of the moon. No, go on. Well, the moon is this thing, and it controls some tides. And in tides come current. And that is about the science I know about it. In two thousand, you're welcome, folks. Math, <laughs> Prince of science, over here. history. Yep. Check it all, baby. Um, in 2015, the History Channel they brought some more evidence into the picture. There were more Christmas cards with handwriting received three years after they escaped, but again, none had postmarks, so they couldn't they couldn't confirm. This I thought was crazy. Their mom, Mother Anglin, Mom Anglin, she got flowers every Mother's Day up until she died in 1973 anonymously anonymously okay um i I love love that i also love this at her funeral two very tall unusual women 
in heavy makeup were reported to have attended her <gasps> oh funeral. My God, I love this. Before disappearing. I love when criminals cross dress. You know, you've, you love that. Also, in 1989, when Papa Anglin died, two strangers in beards showed up at the funeral home. According to their brother, they uh, stood in front of the casket looking at the body for a few minutes. They wept, then walked out. Different costumes. Different costumes. Smart. A family friend claims that he was in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, in 1975. He claims he saw them. He, he hung out with them. He actually has a photograph with them, with two men, with his brothers, <gasps> John and Clarence. This guy is suspect because he was apparently a con man, not a great dude. But forensic ev- forensic experts confirmed that the photo was taken in 1975, um, and they said it was more than likely the England brothers. But a retired U.S. deputy marshal looked at the photo and was like, he looked and he said this was the best lead that they had on the case. But then another marshal said that the friend was a bad guy and he claims it's not the men because they're wearing sunglasses. The, the, the photo is them wearing sunglasses. Which so you just like, can't tell. You like, can't really you can't. tell. And they're older now. I mean, it's 10 years, but still. In a 2010 deathbed confession by this guy Robert, one of the siblings of the brothers, that he was in contact with John and Clarence from 1963 until 1987. There was also another theory that I think the brother claimed that they, on the last ferry that was out that night, they used an electric cord and they pulled it. <laughs> they pulled them oh. out of there. And they used it as a tow on the passenger wow. ferry. The FBI actually did, was interested in this Brazil story, and it went to, they went to Brazil in 1965, but found no evidence. So only a couple years after the fact. Allen was not charged in the attempt of the escape, probably because he gave so much freaking information. But he was in and out of jail and eventually he was stabbed by a fellow prisoner in Florida and died in jail in 78 at the age of 49. So as of right now, we do not know if the if John, Frank, and Clarence are alive. Look, they made it. They're probably I dead now, but they made it. I love his family just like, I mean, if nothing else, I love that his family has hope. Frank seems like he met his cousin Bud. Maybe they're just hanging out in Brazil, just l- lapping it up. You know what? Let him. Let him. That was a really creative. But also, I mean, they were listen. They were charged with robbery. They escaped Alcatraz. Like it's just like I feel like Alcatraz for a high security prison. Like throw the murderers in there. Like if people. I mean, maybe I'm wrong in that. Maybe I'm too light on crime. But you know. Look, I kind of feel like it should be a rule if you figure out how to break out like that, you just get to stay out. That's. All right, depending on the crime, depending on the crime. If you're a murderer, you never leave. Yeah, if you're a murderer. If you're a raper, raper? Nope. Rapist? If you're a raper? Or if you're a raper? We don't like them rapers. We don't like them. There's a few things we don't like, but... These kids were one of 13. I can't imagine... Toy gun robbery with no violence. And then they built this raft and the secret hideaway and Santa's workshop upstairs. With the dummies in bed? It's good. It's good. It's good. Again, like... Armed robbery, these were one of 13 kids. There was one of 13 kids in that house. They were farmers. They traveled up and down and were constantly on farms, like, harvesting shit. It's like, maybe they just wanted to get out of that life, and so they had to rob a bank. 
I mean, obviously we're going to romanticize the hell out of it because it's, it's a such story. a good story that you just, and you <laughs> don't know why, but you are compelled to wish them well. You're compelled to be like, it's the movie where you're watching the bad guy, but it's through, but the bad guy's the protagonist. So you're sort of weirdly uh, like, don't get caught. It's a Frank Abagnale situation played by, who's, my question is, why hasn't anyone done this movie? Is there, there's got to be a movie on oh, this. Oh man, just not a good enough one. Yeah, apparently. not a good enough one. That happens a lot. That happens a lot, a lot. <sighs> Got to get in the movie-making business, but I'm too tired. <laughs> if a podcast is exhausting, could you imagine a film? Imagine a whole film. Get real. It was a great story. Thank, Thank you. you for telling it. Guys, I am doing a story about McDonald's where I learned last week Carrie's parents I would be both worked at McDonald's. not here if it wasn't for some of those sweet, sweet fries. Oh, God, French fries are so good. Do you know that's the number one food people are ordering in COVID time? French fries? Because you can't make them at home. It's tricky. I did get French fries delivered very recently. It's touch and go. Touch and go. It hit the spot. I'm not going to lie. They were smothered and stuff, so it was the kind of thing where they were going to be kind of a soggy situation anyway. I love French fries pretty much anyway. That you'll serve them to me. Same. So... This McDonald's story is not about the French fries. I did get my information from Wikipedia, NBC, ABC, case law, not to be confused with coleslaw, and Thank you, a Courier, you're welcome, a Courier Journal article by Andrew Wolfson that was just terrific. Thank you, Andrew, uh, for doing my homework for me. So, Louise Ogborn is an 18-year-old girl. She's in high school, like you are when you're 18. She's a good girl. She's, like, used to be a Girl Scout. She goes to church. Her mom recently lost her job, so she's like, Mom, I'll help you out. I'm going to get an after-school job at the Mickey D's. On April 9th, 2004, everything gets pretty, pretty shitty. Let's just say that several months after this day... Louise is going to be suffering from panic attacks, insomnia, and nightmares. All of because what happens at Mickey D's, her place of work. Donna Summers is the assistant manager I'm sorry. at... Donna Summers? As in Indeed. The, as in the disco queen herself? It's not that Donna Summers. Uh, you wish it was. I wish it was Donna Summers working it's as a Donna manager. It's Donna Summers, assistant manager of Mount Washington, Kentucky McDonald's location. <laughs> It's that Donna Summers. So close. So close. So close. So she's Louise's boss, and when Louise finishes her shift on April 9th, she's like, Louise, do you mind staying? Somebody's not going to come in. Can you cover a second shift? Louise is like, sure. She sits down to have her terrific, free McDonald's shift meal. While she's sitting and having her break, I think, Donna gets a call in the office, and the person online is like, I'm a police officer. Officer Scott is his last name, and I'm investigating a theft. It's of a purse, or maybe he said a wallet, at the restaurant. He then tells Donna what the suspect looks like and describes Louise. So Donna goes and gets Louise and brings her back to the office and tells her, you are actually the subject of an investigation. And Louise is right away like, I don't ever do bad things. I don't do like, that. I don't I don't do it. I don't. She's like I took a pencil from a teacher's desk once. I returned it. This isn't me. Um she's super shy. She'd never gotten in trouble for anything before. But Donna has her back there and at the caller's instructions, she says, 
you have two choices. The caller says you can get searched here in the office by me or you can go to the police station, but they'll have to arrest you if you go to the police station. So Louise is like, I guess I'll get searched right here so we can just put this thing to bed. Donna is following instructions from the caller and is like, take off your shirt, take off your pants. Has Louise take off one item of clothing at a time until she's naked. Donna's then instructed and does this. She takes Louise's clothes, her cell phone, all her belongings, and removes them to the off from the office. Goes and puts them in her car. So now Louise is in the office with nothing she owns, no, no phone to call anyone, and no clothing. At this point, the other assistant manager of this McDonald's location, Kate Dockery, arrives on the scene and is like, what the fuck's going on? And gives Louise an apron to cover herself. And she's in the back room for like an hour witnessing all of what's happening. But then Donna, I don't know if the caller tells her to do this, but Donna says, "You, sh- Kim, you should go to the front of the house while I deal with this. And Donna leaves. So now it's, or Kim, I'm sorry, Kim leaves Now it's again Donna and Louise and this caller. And at this point, the caller says to Donna, if you guys have to be at work, that's fine. What I actually need you to do right now is recruit a man to keep an eye on Louise, like a bodyguard during this investigation. I hate this. If that's necessary. I hate this story so much already. It's crazy. So Donna goes and gets one of the cooks, which, by the way... Not to be a snob, but I sort of take issue with McDonald's using the word cook. Can we say, like, stacker or powder mixer? Quinn, I don't want to get in this fight with you again. I'm not going to do it. Okay, yeah. Your your mother was grill master, right? She was a grill girl because it was pretty misogynistic, but... I don't want to talk about it. They used to toast their buns. My mom, to this day, if they don't toast her buns, she she sends it back. She lets them know. My mom sends it back. She gets pissed if her fries aren't hot. I like it. Kathy is serious about hot food. stand up. My mom's favorite food. Stand up for your bun. My mom's favorite food. Hot. Not <laughs> spicy, just hot food. Temperature. She can't do cold food. No, I'm just saying, cook seems a little generous to me. All right, but, all right. Sure, uh, sure, Donna sure. goes and gets the cook, Jason Bradley, and brings him into the office. She hands him the phone. He gets on the phone with this guy, and the guy's like, Officer Scott. Officer Scott is like, I need you to remove Louise's apron and describe her to me over the phone. Jason's like, no, this is beyond fucked up what the fuck is going on i'm not participating in this and he goes back to work good for him um good for him i wish maybe he he also done just that little bit more but yes good for him that he was like hard pass on being part of this that's gonna be a no for me dog the caller gets back on the phone with donna and is like okay donna don't worry that guy wasn't into it is there another guy we can get are you married Donna's like, Haha, no brags, I'm not married, but I'm totally engaged. So the caller's like, great, call your fiancé, get him to come to your work. Donna does. She calls her fiancé, oh Walter Nix, oh. who's 42 years old and an exterminator. And I guess he's not exterminating anything because he can come in. Except his own conscience. Ooh, Nailed burn. it. Burned it. Burn, just like Kathy likes it. Walter (laughs) (laughs) shows up and let's just like be clear. He's going to do whatever this caller tells him to do over the course of the next two hours. Two hours. Yep. You heard me right. What's more, 
is Donna, now that Walter's there acting as the guard, is going to go back to work and just leave her fiancé, who doesn't even work at McDonald's, alone in a back office with naked Louise. So she and Kim will come in periodically over the course of the next couple hours, but every time they come in, Louise will be back in the apron and they'll be told to go back to work and the caller or Walter will tell them to leave and they will. So Walter at the caller's instructions tells Louise to drop the apron and there's a variety of things that will happen over the two hours. She'll be told to dance. She'll be told to do jumping jacks. This is under the guise of she needs to shake loose anything that she might be concealing on her This person is naked so fucking person. sick. So fucking sick. No. She'll be ordered to sit in Walter's lap. No. And to kiss him, which would, of course, allow Walter Nix to smell anything that might be on her breath. Tell me, if she doesn't... that's how they, the police, do that. If she doesn't fucking get a shit ton of money from this, I don't know. Well, at some point, she gives some pushback. So then Walter's instructed to spank her for giving the pushback, which he does. And at one point, if she's, like, not listening to Walter, the caller will be like, put her on the phone with me. And he'll say something to scare her about, if you don't do this, there's going to be a worse punishment. Can you just tell me if they find out who did this? It's going to get worse. I'm not going to tell you. You cannot get me to tell this story out of order. It will only serve to confuse me and you. Okay. So, she's a child. She's doing what these two men are telling her to do. She was raised... To listen to the to adults in her life. And if an adult told her to do something, she fucking did it. Which is all what leads to the crescendo moment in my mind. Which is essentially her being told to kneel on the floor and to give Walter a blowjob, which she does. Now, she is terrified. She is confused. She feels like she cannot lose this job. Every time Donna comes in the room, she's crying. She's begging. She's saying, please let me leave. I didn't do anything. She says that her soul left her body and she went numb. At a certain point, she's uh, giving like strenuous objections. She's asking to go to the police. She's asking for her clothes. She's asking to leave. And no one's helping her. After the oral sex happens, Walter Nix, he knows better. There's no way in the entire world he thought that what he was doing was okay. And after that happens... He tells the caller he wants to leave, and he does. And I'm going to say, Walter, that's way too little, way too fucking late. He's And the caller says to Walter, you can leave if you can get a replacement. So Walter goes and tells Donna, his fiance, who does not know what has just happened in that room, uh, you've got to get somebody else. I've got to go. He goes home. He calls his friend, and he says to his friend on the phone, I have just done something terribly bad. No shit, Sherlock. Oh, I hate this story. Donna is like, who can I ask? Who can I ask? And up front at the McDonald's in the customer area, their maintenance man, Tom Sims, happened to come in, not to work, but to have dessert. I thought was interesting. Gross. That's his. You know gross. what? Hey, there, an Oreo actually, McFlurry no, is gross. under three dollars. I'm no. I'm not even that. That's not gross. I'm okay. just gross about the double meaning of dessert of what he's about to go do. Okay, well, that's what grosses me out. Tom, the maintenance worker. I love a McFlurry. Worker, okay. Tom, the maintenance worker, uh, goes in that back room and gets a pretty weird feeling himself right away, and pulls a Jason and is like, "I'm out." You know what? I'm gonna trust my blink, Thank and you. I'm gonna say, 
I'm not into it. The fact that that was the second person that was like, what? What are we doing? This is weird. Makes dum dum Donna start to question what's going on. And at the beginning of this call, we don't know all of what Officer Scott said to Donna, but we do know that at one point he had said that he spoke to her boss and it was also had, had her boss on the phone. Right. Donna has the bright idea that she should maybe call her boss. So she does, and her boss is like, what? I didn't talk to anybody. That's just too little, too fucking late. Oh, my God. This has been hours. So... Donna's like, wait a minute. Oh, God damn the person that's been on the phone calling the shots for three hours might not be who they say they are. Game over. That dude on the phone knows that he's been, whatever, revealed as someone that may or may, that, you know, probably isn't an officer of the law and he hangs up. So Donna is like, oh my God, oh my God. I'm so sorry, and starts apologizing her ass off to Louise, gives her something to cover herself. Donna, you're the second one. I'm going to tell you, just like I told your too fucking fiance. Too little too fucking late. Too little too late. Some of her comeuppance will come later that night when she watches the security footage and gets to see her fiance getting a blowjob from Louise. They will break up after that video. <laughs> that to me is just so vile. That, that Oh, yeah, break up with him. You did the same fucking thing by giving into what this guy did. It's so gross. So whoever this caller was, he was using trying to use law jargon, and he had researched the names of regional manager, managers and local police officers in advance so that he could give out different names that made it sound uh, more credible. What it seems like he was doing was calling restaurants maybe in advance and getting to know names of people that work there and descriptions of them so he could accurately describe them later. So it'd be like he'd call someone else maybe and ask questions about who was working the register. And then he'd get details about that person and he could call later and describe them as the perpetrator of a crime. The police determined that the call originated from a supermarket payphone in Panama City, Florida. Always fucking Florida, am I right? The call was made with an AT&T phone card and they use records to figure out and trace that that it was bought at a Panama City Walmart. Tell me there's video. Yes. So what happens is the Mount Washington police find camera footage of the purchaser of the card and there's another investigation in Massachusetts for a similar crime and their investigation went cold when they couldn't find the purchaser the cameras inside the store were like off but they were on in the parking lot or something but not the registers in in the panama city video which we have they see that the person that bought it is wearing a correctional officer's uniform the kind that is used by corrections corporation of america which is a private security firm it's a white guy he's like 35 to 40 slicked back hair and glasses Now, it's important to know that there were several similar calls that were in the Boston area restaurants, and all of those calls were traced to phone cards purchased in Walmarts in Massachusetts. So it's this pattern of, like, buy an AT&T phone card out of Walmart, go to a payphone, use it there to make it really difficult to track everything. But videos and still photographs from two Walmarts were compared, and it's the same guy. So they're like... It's one person running around and doing this. 
So they call that private security firm and they show them the footage and they're like, we think it's this guy that works for us, David R. Stewart. He gets arrested. Stewart um, has been married 11 years. He has five kids. He's a mall security guard. That That's what he does um, for a living. And he's also volunteered as an auxiliary sheriff's deputy, which might have accounted for, like, they think maybe knowing the verbiage to use yeah. to authenticate him. And then he had a prison guard job. So the detective tracks Stuart down. It's Detective Flaherty. And Stuart denies making the calls, obviously. But he also describes that when he confronted him, he started to sweat profusely and shake uncontrollably. And also asked Flaherty, was anybody hurt? And said, amen, it's over. Which is just like, like, okay, very weird, right? So Flaherty wrote that in his report. So we know that that was kind of how that confrontation went down. Um... Now, despite insisting he'd never bought a phone card, detectives also found in his home a phone phone card, card. and it had been used to call nine restaurants in the past year, including a call to a Burger King in Idaho Falls on the same day that that restaurant's manager was reportedly duped by one of these freaky calls. Police also found applications for police department jobs, and they found, like, weird police magazines uniforms it just seems like he had like this fantasy of being a police officer yeah, yeah just as much of his fantasy of like fucking with someone was probably him ha- being the police officer right That's so fucked so he's extradited to kentucky and the charges are solicitation impersonating a police officer and sodomy and if convicted he's going to be in prison for up to 15 years but no, 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 no. Just say Happy he... Halloween 2016. He's acquitted. <gasps> yes. How? Lack of direct evidence, basically. It's a jury trial, and they find him not guilty. Fuck. Fuck. I hate that. But when after he first got, like, busted, the calls all stopped. Like, there were no calls after that. But I, you know, it's important that we say, like, he was found not guilty, but that's all I'm going to say. Is that weird noise? Is that the end? Well, as a result of these events, Donna was fired. Walter was charged with sexual assault. He got five years in prison for the beach. And the guy that Walter, you fucking loser. Yeah, and also the guy that orchestrated this got nothing. Nothing. Louise, she had like post traumatic stress order. She was not doing okay. Um, She sued McDonald's. She sued Donna Summers. Summers sued McDonald's. McDonald's did a cross complaint and sued Stuart and Nick's. Everybody fucking sued each other. Everybody was like, who was even to blame? It's such a weird thing to happen that no one knew what to do and everyone was pissed. Um, Basically, the jury found for Louise against McDonald's um, and she got like a million dollars. Um, it's not enough. It's never enough, but I hope it helps. It says she got, um, it's a little over a million in compensatory damages and five fucking million in punitive damages. They also found against McDonald's on Summer's claim because Donna was like, you know, suing them too. And she got $100,000 in compensatory damages and a million in punitive. One of the reasons why, because you're kind of like, Donna, you dumb dumb. 
what were you even thinking? But there was substantial evidence that the legal department knew about some of these incidences happening at different restaurants because it was happening all the time. Not happening to this level. That's why I'm telling you about this case. But But attempts at it happening, they knew it was a problem. They were supposed to let everyone know to make sure that all the employees knew and they could prevent these future incidences. It wasn't they didn't make sure the staff was as informed as they needed to be. They like, they did something, right. like a call or something, right? But not enough. Basically, by the time this caller called the McDonald's in Mount Washington, there had been um, supervisors had been duped in sixty-eight stores in thirty-two states. What? And it was a bunch of different chains. It wasn't just McDonald's, but. There were managers at 17 McDonald's stores um, that had been conned. It just goes to show you, like, how much we, we like, we, we put so much stock in authority mm-hmm. and fear. It's like, ugh. Well, yeah. So there was a bunch of times where he called and, like, it didn't work out. And then there were a bunch of times where it totally did work out. The first report of such a call was actually in 1995 in Devil's Lake. And another came later that year in Fallon, Nevada. And it was the same. It was like a caller pretending to be a police officer. They would pick tiny community towns where people are kind of have a vibe of being more trusting. By the end of 2003, there were already 60 calls. But they thought it was one guy. I'm going to give you just a couple bloops of some of the calls. Um, This is the only one I went in depth on. But November 30th, 2000, a caller persuaded a manager at McDonald's in Leechfield to remove her own clothes in front of a customer who the caller says was suspected of sex offenses, like to try to test the customer to see if he would try to molest her. Oh, my God. And, and it's so sad to take these out of context because, like, everybody would put themselves in this situation, would say, I would never do that, I would never do that, right? It's just, like, s- some people are personal easily persuaded or like I well, don't know the Milgram experiment essentially where do you know what I'm talking about it's where they gave the shocks where do you know what I'm talking about I think so yeah it's like you were told that the experiment had to do with learning and you would administer shocks to a person that was getting answers wrong and they kept increasing the amount of shock you were giving the person and would even let you know like it's so dangerous it could kill them yeah and they'd see, they'd keep increasing, it's going to be this crazy. And it was an actor pretending to be shocked. But they wanted to see how far would people would go f- just being, being told. told. And they would say things like, it was a, some sort of order where <sighs> they'd say things like, you, the experiment needs to continue. Or they'd say things to you like, this, you must do this. And they'd use specific language to see if you'd follow an order. Oh. And it was crazy what they found. Because people were... Uh, Nine times out of ten, following shocking. Orders. I mean, I'm totally butchering this yeah, study because it's the, not in front the, of me. But the idea, but, but the, the, gist the founding was, is the same. Yeah, is that they people, did it because they wanted to see how the fuck Nazi Germany happened, and they were I'll like, never, "Why would you yeah. just listen?" And it's like, "Nope, we would still do that." And so this is anyway. I'm going to tell you a couple okay. more. May 29th, 2002, an 18-year-old, her first hour on the job at McDonald's in Roosevelt, Iowa, was forced to strip, jog naked. And do a bunch of weird poses. January 26, 2003, Davenport, Iowa at Applebee's. One of the assistant managers did a 90-minute search of a waitress. And 
believed the person on the phone to be a cop, even though the person called collect, and even though the assistant manager had read a memo warning them of fake calls. June 3rd, 2003, Juneau, Alaska. It's a Taco Bell. And the manager's asked to take a 14-year-old customer and strip her and perform like weird lewd acts. McDonald's in Hinesville, Georgia, a 55-year-old janitor was told to put his finger in the vagina of a 19-year-old cashier no. to look for contraband. May 2004, Joplin, Missouri, a 16-year-old girl was managing a Sonic. She was strip-searched and had to perform oral sex on a male cook. Burger King, Pendleton, Indiana, a supervisor was searching like a 15-year-old girl and the dad came and the dad's there and he wouldn't stop. The dad had to jump over the counter and go back and stop him. Dover, Delaware, a Burger King manager was strip searching an 18-year-old employee and he fought off her mother and boyfriend. Like got in a physical fight. Because he so believed he needed to do that or wanted to do that or whatever. Jesus Christ. The police had to be called. They got in such a fight. So basically over time, the calls seem like they got a little more crazy. Because he realized how far he could get people to so go. So he's just going. It was like a game. Just how far, how far, how far. Oh and yeah, God. no one ever That's was punished horrifying. for this. Other than the victims. No one was fucking punished, you know? Wow. I hate that story, Quinn. I hate that story. Well. I gave you a good story. Why'd you do that to me? You know what it was? There's a movie that they did about it. I'm sure it's really upsetting. Yeah, I don't want to watch it. No, thank you. But I just think it's so interesting that the... Human nature. Yes, that like there's no questioning authority. And I hope we're coming away from that now with everything that's been going on with... You and I have both shared stories where we've had those experiences with authority figures where it's like, you know, I mean, maybe not, I am, you yeah. know, I mean, like, where you just, you know... Don't trust. Don't question it. You just trust. You don't trust your blink. You just go for it. You think you're just you're supposed to listen and that that makes you on the side of right. And that's not how it goes. Oh, I hate this. I hate it. I hate that. I'm so sad for the victims. It's a very different thing to commit a crime over the computer, for instance. Right. Like the, what's your name? Um, I love you, now die. Yeah. And it's for this guy, he committed all these crimes over the <sighs> telephone. He didn't do anything physically. So you do wonder if that made it easier on him that he didn't have to see the devastation and the fear and the loss and the chaos that ensued. It's just a disgusting power play. Like, it's truly, ugh, it makes me sick to my stomach go. Yeah. Well, your parents are the ones that work there. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually how I was made. (laughs) The caller got on the phone with your dad. He's like, marry that woman. You know what? Just marry that girl. It was a tame one. You should marry her. It was a romantic one. It was a romantic one. You should marry her. Yeah, if only he would have pivoted and changed directions and tried to do some good. (laughs) Oh, I can't even think about that. You see a woman customer up front? Want you to give her a bouquet of flowers and tell her to have a great day. (laughs) That's nice. You see a little kid in line? You know what? Supersize. Why not? Give what do we have two to happy lose? meal toys. What are you doing? Ugh, use your power for good, people. That ma- that story made me nauseous. Um, and it, the heat, the oppressive heat I in the room is also. The, I was gonna say, I think we might need to take um, a break. Take some air. Hey, dear readers, we love you. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, review, Patreon. Patreon. 
That's what we're going to end on. Just do that. Just do it. Come we, on. Come what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of? Don't be a chicken. Consider it Officer Scott telling you a t- Officer Scott's going to give you a call tonight and tell you to give to our Patreon. <laughs> Ew. And Officer Scott never lies. Also, I got to say hi to Koa. Hey, dear readers, we love you. Peace. Peace.